notes, etc. We'll see how it goes. So, it's um, chapter 16, the last chapter in Mark's Gospel. I want to focus on two things. What Mark says and what Mark doesn't say. And we'll take them in reverse order, to be logical. There are two things Mark doesn't say. Anything printed in your Bibles after the end of verse 8. And secondly, anything that isn't printed in your Bibles after the end of verse 8, but perhaps ought to be there, or we might wish were there. We look at what is printed first and get that issue out of the way. Then we'll look at whether verse 8 really is where Mark intended his gospel to end or whether he originally wrote something else, but it's got lost. Now, this second question could easily give us hours of pure delight wallowing in academic nerdery. But sometimes you have to deny yourself, don't you? I'll keep it brief, because I'm not actually interested, very interested, in the academic nerdery. I'm much more interested in Mark's gospel. But the question whether Mark originally carried on through a verse 9, so to speak, and maybe even a chapter 17 or 18, does make a difference to how we read the eight verses we have got. So we will, after all, eventually get round to what Mark does say. Okay, so what comes after verse 8? Different Bibles handle this differently. You may have verses 9 to 20, printed to carry straight on from verse 8. Or you may have them in small print as a footnote. The church NIV draws a line under verse 8 and prints the rest in italics afterwards. So I'm saying Mark is not the author of these verses. They are not part of the gospel according to Mark. Now, it's virtually unheard of for almost all scholars of the Bible to agree about anything. But almost all of them do agree on this one. So I'm going with it. I'd like to say just three things about why they do. Number one. There are loads of Greek manuscripts from the first several centuries AD, um, which contain books of the New Testament or fragments of books, etc. And they tend to be at least slightly different from each other. Now, scholars who are into this kind of thing have to try to work out which version is likely to be the closest to what Mark, or whoever it is, will have written. So we're talking about probability, not certainty. And these scholars have generally agreed rules of thumb for how to decide which version to choose. Now, for those of you who've perhaps 
never looked at a Greek New Testament before. Let me just show you what I'm talking about. So, in general, scholars go for the oldest manuscripts. And by and large, they have a pretty fair idea which are the oldest ones, how to date them. But that doesn't always quite work. I'm, for instance, an early, a very early manuscript might be a bit suspect. Um, it might sort of reflect a, the bias of a scribe. If he seems a bit partial to some heresy or other, well, you might not be too sure about him. So you might, want to, you might not want to follow him in preference to some slightly later ones, and so on. Now, Mark 16, verses 9 to 20, those verses appear in the vast majority of manuscripts. The vast majority of manuscripts just not the earliest ones. They do not appear in, the, in several earliest manuscripts. And that's what gets them the boot from the scholars. But we'll be wondering in a minute or two why they come in so many later ones. Why do people keep sticking them in if the, if the earliest ones don't have them? Okay, that's point, reason one for booting these verses out. Reason two. There are apparently 15 Greek words in this passage that don't appear anywhere else in Mark. Um, I did look at a commentary which said there were 12. I don't know, I'd have thought it was fairly easy to count Greek words, but there we are. Um, no, I can see there might be ways in which it's uh, uncertain. But 12, 15, whatever. That's a lot. You might expect one or two but not 12 or 15 in 12 verses. Okay? Um, that seems to me to be a pretty good argument. So those, are, those two are fairly cut and dried kind of reasons. The third one is less cut and dried. And to me, it's much more interesting. The whole approach to storytelling in these verses is different. And if you read them and think about them, Inferior. They're nothing like as good, nothing like as well written. What we get there are versions of the story in Matthew, for the most part, but with bits from Luke, verses 12 and 13, are based on Luke's story of the walk to Emmaus. Um, there's a bit of Acts in there as well, I think. But the narrative bits are pretty minimal. As if the author knows that he... He can't leave the Son of God dead, but isn't really interested in the people or their stories. There, there are no visual details in the events described, no interest in what's going on in people's minds, except that they didn't believe. Mary Magdalene uh, has had seven demons thrown out of her, But why does he tell us, if it's Mark, why does he tell us that now, when she's already had three mentions since she was first introduced in chapter 15, verse 40? 
Well, actually, that bit looks as if it's been lifted from Luke, who at least had the sense to include it when he first introduced her in his chapter 8. Jesus' speech that begins in verse 15 is derived from Matthew, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, except for a couple of points. His followers would pick up snakes and drink deadly poison without being harmed. Paul obviously didn't know this one, because uh, when he unwittingly picked up a poisonous snake on the island of Malta, he quickly flicked it off his wrist just in time. He didn't leave it there and proclaim the power of the risen Christ to protect him from its bite. I think I detect in this passage an obsession with the spectacular, not unknown among early Christians, nor modern ones for that matter. You know, our God does special magic. And to this day, I understand there are Christians, in the United States at least, who lay on public snake handling ceremonies on the basis of Mark 16, 18. And apparently, there have been a number of cases where the performer has died from snake bite. I've never heard of deadly nightshade tea parties being laid on in church, but you never know. So we'll forget about verses 9 to 20. They're a low-fat, resurrection-light diet with a couple of dodgy additives. Let's move on to what doesn't get printed after the end of verse 8. And that is any kind of encounter with the risen Jesus. Like we get in Matthew and Luke and John. Did Mark originally write a passage about Jesus' appearances, but he got lost? Or did he mean it to end at verse 8? And this time, the scholars are quite divided. And don't imagine that those who think that Mark meant to end at verse 8 are just those who'd really rather not believe in the resurrection. It's what some highly orthodox and firmly resurrection-believing scholars do think. Okay. Um, it's about time I read the passage, isn't it, really? At least I've got it down to only eight verses now. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought... Sorry, I misread that, didn't I? When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll up the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right-hand side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. 
He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone. They were scared, you see. End of Mark's Gospel. So you'll have worked out what I think about the ending, I guess. I think we lost it. I think it's gone missing. You'll note that I filled it very slightly by finishing with my own translation of the last little sentence. The NIV says, because they were afraid. I think because is too strong and high profile a word for the little Greek word Mark uses. The NRSV translation, I think, is better. It says, for they were afraid. The Greek is just a two-word sentence. They were afraid is all one word in Greek. And for, in Greek, is such a low-profile word that it must never be the first word in his sentence. Well, if it comes in a two-word sentence, it's going to be the last word, isn't it? And if a two-word sentence comes at the end of the Gospel, then this low-profile little word is going to be the last word of the Gospel, as we have it. That doesn't prove the case that it's lost, but it's a pretty funny way to end a Gospel. That's what I was trying to get across by my alternative translation. It seems to me to be a balmy way to end a gospel. Ah, oh, but, says the other side, there are ancient, other ancient books that do finish with this same little Greek word, meaning for. Not many. It's extremely unusual. The only one I know myself is by the philosopher Plato. And it's just the kind of chatty, tongue-in-cheek thing that Plato would do. I don't think Mark's like that. And by the way, uh, if a bit of a book is going to go missing, then it's most likely to be the beginning or the end of the scroll, where it somehow gets ripped off or whatever. A much better line of inquiry, I think, is to look at the whole direction Mark's gospel has been taking so far. I want to try and show that the whole of Mark's gospel demands the resurrection as its ending. I'm actually much less interested in a question about manuscripts than in being on the receiving end of what Mark wanted to say. In, I think, the 1990s, the actor Alec McCowan would regularly fill a West End theatre for his one-man show. It was a recital of Mark's gospel. Authorised version, I believe. I'm ashamed to say that even if I had known about it at the time, I probably wouldn't have seen the point of going. I think that if Mark could have known about it, he would be amazed that we could consider any other way 
of encountering his gospel. A whole book with its own drama, recited out loud for the maximum impact. That's how reading happened in Mark's world. And if the later added ending I was rather rude about earlier can tell us anything, it's this. The vast majority of manuscripts, as I said, include it, just not the earliest ones. It's there, not because later scribes had carefully looked at the different manuscripts, but because they and their audiences felt that the rest of the book required some resurrection appearances. So, let's start at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. You don't need to turn to this. I'll read, it, I'll read it out. It's very short. Chapter 1, verse 1. You can learn a lot about books by how they begin, as well as how they end. And we do have the beginning of this book. Uh, I think there are some people who think we haven't got the beginning of Mark's Gospel. Well, let's assume that we have, okay? The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet. That doesn't look very helpful, does it? Good news and gospel are two ways of, saying, of translating the same word. Now, do you know what that word actually refers to when New Testament writers use it? Not when modern Christians use it, but when New Testament writers use it. The answer is fairly clear if you read the New Testament, and uncontroversial actually, though I guess it would come as a surprise to many Christians today. It's mainly a series of events. It's news usually a series of events, okay? It begins with, the old, with old Testament problems in need of a solution. Notice how Mark goes straight into Isaiah, doesn't he? After the Old Testament, uh, we then get the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, his resurrection, and finally appearances to various people. Those are the usual ingredients. There are longer and shorter versions. When Paul gives his brief definition of what the gospel is, very brief, in 1 Corinthians 15, he leaves out the life of Jesus, but he gives the rest. When the gospel, or good news, is preached in various places in the Acts of the Apostles, the mix is varied slightly. Check for yourselves, but uh, the resurrection never gets left out. If it's the gospel, it's got to have the resurrection. Mark begins his gospel with the beginning of the gospel. It would be amazing if when he got to the empty tomb, he just said, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know the rest, don't you? Like, like the kind of 20th century novel that gets to the end and leaves you, well, leaves me at least, feeling rather stupid. <laughs> you just don't get it. Um, I doubt whether Mark was the real inventor of the 20th century novel. So, at long last, what Mark actually does say, though not chapter 16 quite yet. And actually, as I said, I'm more interested in following the big story, seeing how it leads up to the resurrection, than in arguing that Mark's ending is missing. Though there'll be some of that as well. I'm going to follow two trails through the gospel, the first one has to do with prophecy. Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. Jesus does this four times. Um, you may be able to find others, but I found four anyway. Three in the middle of his book, chapters 8, 9, and 10, and one in chapter 14. In chapter 8, 
Jesus has just done some market research into what people make of him. Then he asks his closest disciples what they make of him. And Peter replies, you're the Messiah. One of the great revelations of Mark's gospel. Let me read a relevant bit from chapter 8. Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to tell him off. Jesus follows it, actually, with talk about taking up your cross and having to lose your life if you want to save it. And with hindsight, that sounds a bit like resurrection language, doesn't it? The second passage is in chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And then in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Note how the descriptions, the description of his suffering and death, varies in each case. But the resurrection, even more in the Greek than the English, stays pretty much the same. Now, is Mark interested in whether Jesus' predictions come true? That's not a silly question. There's a difference between being interested in something and in taking it seriously. I take road signs seriously when I'm driving. I'm almost never interested in them. Okay? They're predictable and boring, aren't they? Um, So, we can assume that Mark took Jesus' predictions seriously. But can we tell whether he was actually interested in whether they came true? Okay, watch this space. Fast forward to chapter 14. The Last Supper is over, and Jesus is soon to be arrested. By the way, did you know that Mark composed sandwiches? Uh, yeah, he did, really, honest. 
He'll tell a story, but break it in two. And put something else in the middle. A sandwich filling, okay? Happened several times. And in Mark's sandwiches, there's usually an important connection between the filling and the bread slices. Okay, so bear that in mind. Well, we've got one here in chapter 14. The bread is Peter's denial of Jesus. Let's read chapter 14, starting at verse 27. So they went to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, fourth prediction of resurrection, okay, it's not the point I was trying to make, but there it is. But after I, I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today... Yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. So, yes, remember verse 28, the fourth prediction of the resurrection. Mark doesn't want us to forget that resurrection is on the agenda. And the bit about Galilee, remember that, Galilee, prepares the way for chapter 16. And what the young man says, uh, the young man in the empty tomb tells the women. Okay, then after this passage I've just read in chapter 14, we get Jesus' arrest and trial before the high priest and his council before we return to the second slice of the sandwich in the end of the chapter starting from verse 66 on. And notice what we get immediately before that second slice. Jesus has made claims about himself that the high priest and co. find blasphemous. Verse 65... They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. Matthew and Luke add the question, Go on, tell us, who hit you? Implication. You're a rubbish prophet, aren't you? Meanwhile, a few yards away, Second slice of sandwich. Peter is denying Jesus. And he remembers what Jesus said. And realises that Jesus is anything but a rubbish prophet. I suggest that after this, Mark more or less has to give us resurrection appearances that involve at least Peter and Galilee. Which the other Gospels do, of course. By the way, did anybody ever tell you that Mark was a naive, unsophisticated sort of character who just told simple stories? Don't believe a word of it. His Greek may be rough and ready, 
and his narrative's less uh, streamlined than Matthew's and Luke's, but he really knows how to plan and construct his storytelling. And we'll see more of that shortly. I said we'd follow two trails through the gospel. That was the first one, trail of prophecy. Now we go on to the second one. We still haven't got to chapter 16 yet, I know. We need to look at a bit of chapter 15 first. And before we do, we need a bit of chapter 1 and a bit of chapter 9. There's no resurrection in sight in chapter 15 anyway, either. In chapter 15, we're focusing on the death of Jesus, which is verses 33 to 39. And if you have your Bible to hand, it's worth having it open here. I'm going to read it now, but have it open so you can refer to it. It's a short passage, but it's a major climax of the whole gospel. Uh, whether there'd have been another major climax later, I'm not sure. But uh, as we have it, this is a major climax of the whole gospel. We need to be thinking Alec McCowan-style tra- dramatic performances here. <clears throat> Scholars refer to this as the third of the three great pillars of Mark's gospel. Um, well, maybe, maybe drama has movement, but pillars are static. Uh, <clears throat> or it's rough on their buildings if they're not. To see what Mark's up to, we need to see how he's used the first two pillars. Um, because he has them to prepare the way for this one. Could we is the, have the first slide up, please, Martin? And we'll just look very, very quickly at the, these two passages. The first pillar is Jesus' baptism in chapter 1. And the second one is his transfiguration in chapter, no, chapter 9. I've picked out four features from the narrative in each case. <clears throat> They're not exactly parallel with each other, are they? But you can see that the right-hand column is sort of vaguely repetitive of the left-hand column. And and we'll leave that up when we get to the crucifixion. Just have a look. We've got... um, let Let me read the right bit to start with. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And I won't go, can't go into it now, but obviously this is John the Baptist who is baptizing him. And John the Baptist is presented in such a way as to make the readers, sorry I say readers we shouldn't think like that, the original audience, the audience think ah, Elijah John the Baptist is an Elijah figure so John the Baptist and Elijah, there we go chapter 9 the transfiguration So, verses 3 and 4. Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. 
and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And verse 7, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. So I think, I mean, you may think, hang on, Mark, people in those days were too backward and primitive and not very bright, and they wouldn't pick this sort of thing up. Let's not be patronising about ancient people. They were much better at paying attention to public speaking than we are, and they had far better, better developed memories than we have. And I guess that they talked about them as what, what they heard read as well. So, I, I, you know, it seems, it seems Im, implausible to the modern mind that Mark could have meant people, as they were going through the performance, to pick these things up. I say, look at the evidence. They're there. And then start worrying about what no ancient people must have been like if, they could, if it was worth putting these things in. So he's giving us these four, fe- four features as clues that he's giving us a major heavenly revelation. So what happens if he gives us these clues a third time? Turn please to chapter 15, verse 33. I'm not going to read it through. I will pick out features. But if you have it in front of you, you can see what it says for yourself, and you can decide whether I'm twisting the text in front of you. At midday, we get darkness from the heavens. We get a loud voice as well. Only it's Jesus' voice this time. Eloi, Eloi, he calls. I guess most bystanders will have known that that's Aramaic for God. Aramaic or Hebrew? Aramaic. But some misunderstood. Do they, is it deliberate misunderstanding? I don't know. And say, he's calling on Elijah. Why bring Elijah into it? It's as if Mark is digging us, the audience, in the ribs and saying, Oi, get it? And as they point out, Elijah will be a fat lot of use now. After Jesus has died, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. There's some debate as to which curtain it is, I believe. But quite likely it contained a representation of the sky, the heavens, as the heavens were torn in the earlier stories, in the earlier story. But this great heavenly revelation is going badly wrong. Jesus has already tried calling God to account for deserting him. And God had nothing to say for himself. We know what God ought to have said. This is my beloved son, and so on. 
but it's too late now. Jesus is dead. But then, and I find this a particularly hideous twist to the story, we get what God ought to have said, but from the mouth of the Roman soldier who's just presided over his death. This man was son of God. What he understood by those words is not obvious, at least it isn't obvious to me. I often wonder about that, I don't know. What matters, though, is that the only credible authority for those words is failing to utter them. The man who does is on the payroll of the principalities and powers of this world. It's as if Mark's saying, if there's a God in heaven, the ball's in his court now. High drama, great expectations, and appalling disappointment. What follows after that is low-key narrative. Joseph of Arimathea does this, Pilate says that, and Jesus' body is buried in a tomb. Women followers of Jesus get a big role now. They're the main characters in what we've got of chapter 16. Yes, chapter 16. They're going to anoint Jesus' body with spices and ointments. It's what you do with a corpse, uh, presumably tone down the smell of decomposition. Then, maybe a year later, uh, you collect the bones and put them in a bone container called an ossuary. I, I think I'm right in saying this generally rega- it was generally regarded as women's work. And from the point of view of these women, it's obviously the right thing to do. Their man, it seems, has been a failure after all. But he was a fine man. And they want to do the right thing while they're getting over the shock. But they don't know that their, <coughs> their mission is completely unnecessary. I don't just mean because Jesus' body is no longer there. I wonder if they were around. When Jesus went to the house of Simon the leper a few days ago, as we were a few minutes ago, so to speak, as we were listening to chapter 14 being read, maybe, maybe not, the point is that Jesus' body has already been anointed for burial by the woman who came into Simon's house. Jesus said so himself. I wonder if the lost part of the gospel said anything about that. In chapter 16 itself, we could have the uh, first half up. Uh, please, Martin, is it? Note how the story is told from the women's point of view. It's, I'm not going to read it through again, but it's their motive for buying the spices. What they were talking and worrying about as they walked to the tomb, trivial stuff you might have, no, it's what people talk about and think about, isn't it? 
There is no all-knowing narrator here who's seen the resurrection coming. It hasn't crossed their minds. And it's their minds that we're in for this story. They've got a practical problem. How to get inside the tomb when there's going to be a great stone they probably won't be able to move. We're not told about the stone being rolled away. We just get told that these women saw that it was rolled away. And they saw a young man in a white robe sitting on the right-hand side. Now, what's right and left is subjective. It's relative to the viewer. This is my right-hand side, but it's not yours. This was their right-hand side that the young man was sitting on. In Matthew's version, it's an angel they meet. Maybe it was. But Mark is giving us the women's story. It looks to them, he looks to them like a young man in a white robe. So he is a young man in a white robe. Verses 6 to 8 uh, give us the women's emotions. They're trembling and bewildered and above all, frightened. I love this story because of the way it brings me close to things happening to real people. Okay, so Mark's a good storyteller, but that doesn't mean he's making it up. Yes, but everybody knows. Every ancient person, just as much as every modern person, knows resurrection is simply one of those things that can't and doesn't happen. It's going to be a hard sell. If you're, and if you're trying to sell a resurrection product you've made up yourself, you're not going to rely on the testimony of women. You won't make women your first port of call. And you certainly won't tell the story from their point of view. This was a real embarrassment for early Christians, explaining the gospel to pagans, certainly. The second century philosopher Celsus is quite scathing about the resurrection stories, the way they depended on hysterical and deluded women. So, no one's going to invent a story like Mark 16. It's too embarrassing. I guess you're probably familiar with the idea that God broke all the ancient rules in choosing to give, <coughs> in choosing to give this revelation to women. Their word didn't count as evidence in a Jewish court of law. It may not be quite so well known that Mark is breaking ancient rules as well. If you want to believe, if you want people to believe a story in a serious piece of writing, your sources need to be high status men. I think I've read that you couldn't possibly go lower than scum like a centurion. If you're a serious writer of history and biography, probably similarly. To use low-status women as your sources is ridiculous. To invite your readers to enter into the minds of low-status women is just despicable. I love it. Now, enter into the minds, <coughs> the minds of these women. Would you believe the young man's story? 
I'm not sure I would. After God's silence, his refusal to answer Jesus, I think I'd want God's word for it. An appearance from the risen Jesus would do nicely. But before this, that, I think I make sense of the women's fear. We often get fear in Mark's gospel when people witness Jesus acting with the power and authority of God. And we also get it in ordinary cases when the future looks dangerous. These women have just been told about what sounds remarkably like the power of God, therefore fear. They aren't sure, perhaps, whether to believe it. It's the kind of thing you don't want to get wrong, therefore fear. If they're seen leaving a tomb that people will think has just been robbed, frightening consequences. Mark says they say nothing to anyone in their fear. But the young man told them to go, to, to go and tell the disciples, and especially Peter. Maybe Mark just means they didn't go blabbing the news all over the place. Who knows? End of gospel. We're none the wiser. We're in midair. At this point, a thought comes to mind. A memory. Or at least, it comes to the mind of one or two writers whose books I've looked at. Another sandwich. It's the second half of chapter five. We'll turn to it now. A frightened woman. Yes, frightened women seem to be important here, don't they? A frightened woman. She's desperate. She's come to Jesus for healing. She touches his clothes and is immediately better. Jesus starts asking questions. So she came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. That's the sandwich filling. You know what the bread slices were? The story of how Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Fear in the presence of God's power. It's quite rational. But he's a healing, life-giving, life-restoring God. Amen. Shall we just close very briefly in prayer? Father, we thank you that your good news comes in stories about people who in so many ways are like us. That we can think ourselves into how they felt, how they acted the way they did, why they acted the way they did. And we can be, <coughs> we can be encouraged and have our hearts warmed as we try to live again those experiences of those people and think how they may impact on us as we live in the light and the power of your resurrection. So we ask that power and that light now and for the rest of this week. Amen.